Welcome to Black Diplomats, a podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we'll be breaking down the impact of President Joe Biden's decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Wednesday, Biden said that, and I quote, it's time to end the forever war, adding that it was never meant to be a multi-generational undertaking and that service members now serving in Afghanistan had parents who served in the same war. Let's listen to more of Biden's remarks of the troop withdrawal. And over the next few months, we'll also determine what a continued U.S. diplomatic presence in Afghanistan will look like, including how we'll ensure the security of our diplomats. Now, look, I know there are many who will loudly insist that diplomacy cannot succeed without a robust U.S. military presence to stand as leverage. We gave that argument a decade. It's never proved effective. Not when we had 98,000 troops in Afghanistan. Since U.S. troops invaded in 2001, more than 2,300 of them have died and more than 2,000 American service members have been wounded in action. A Brown University project estimates that some 4,300 civilians have also been killed. There are currently 2,500 American troops serving in Afghanistan as part of an advice and assist mission to help Afghan security forces. At the height of the war, around 100,000 troops were in the country. Joining us to talk about what all of this means are three veterans who are deployed to Afghanistan. Isaiah James is a Jamaican-American community organizer and army veteran who served two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan during his eight years of service. Isaiah is running for Congress out of New York's 9th Congressional District. Richard Brookshire is a co-founder of Black Veterans Project. As a storyteller who leverages innovative and integrated marketing and communications, government affairs, and documentary filmmaking to deliver strategic and dynamic social impacts, his portfolio to date spans across issues relating to racial and economic justice, workforce development, diversity and inclusion, and military and veteran affairs. Richard received his MPA in urban policy with a specialization in media and advocacy from Columbia University. And he is a former combat medic and U.S. Army veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Brittany Ramos de Barros is the organizing director at About Face, Veterans Against the War. She deployed to Afghanistan for a year in 2012 and has worked on economic and racial liberation issues in various capacities since she returned. The Army vet is particularly passionate about leveraging her experience as a psychological operations officer to center narrative and behavioral change and campaign strategy. She is running for Congress out of New York's 11th District. Welcome to the show, y'all. Hey. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Now, Richard, you've been, you know, you've been on the show before because I, you yeah. know, so second time. So welcome back again. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, we've also, yeah, but we also have also interviewed you for other articles and things. And so just my go-to guy. Before we get into all this, I just want to do a mental health check with y'all. How are y'all feeling? So Isaiah, 
just from a mental health standpoint, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing as well as anybody can be doing in this political climate and cultural climate. I mean, my wife keeps me grounded, so that's my my you know ear to to talk to every night, and my friends who I know, like Richard, who I consider a brother more than a friend, they keep me grounded when I need some that extra shoulder to lean on. But I'm doing. About as well as anybody could be doing today. Richard. Man, I mean, this week has actually been quite a struggle for me. I, I suffer from bipolar disorder, so I'm having one of one of my tough weeks. But um more than anything, I think uh just the work streams with my project have been so manifold, so intense. And I, I'm sure at some point during our conversation I might mention some of what we're working on, but yeah, just learning to take breaks and, um, you know, get the rest that I need and just, you know, pace myself through the work because it's it's kind of a lifetime commitment here. So, yeah, I, I hear you, man. I hear you. So, by the way, if you don't mind me asking me, Richard, you know, when when were you diagnosed with bipolar disorder? Was it connected to your service or anything like that? Yeah, so um, my journey, I served seven years as a combat medic. I got out in 2016 by you know, kind of everybody's, you know, measure, everyone thought that I had made like a seamless transition, went from, you know, an enlisted NCO to graduating from Columbia to getting a dream job with the mayor, uh, the, um, with the city of New York. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I, I uh, fell into a deep depression and um, kind of an existential crisis as I transition, which a lot of veterans do, right? Like you're trying to contextualize your service, you're trying to figure out how you fit into community so on and so forth. And for the most of my 20s, I think I was striving to become some idea of what I thought I should be. And then by the time I got to my 30s, I was just confronted with um, all of the traumas that I had gone through, but specifically, um, you know, that difficulty in, in contextualizing myself post-service um, and dealing with a lot of the things that I had seen. And so, um, you know, I had a, unfortunately I had a suicide attempt and it was shortly thereafter that you know, I'd been trying to get help for the better part of a year and a half, but it was failing. Um, and just like so many vets, you know, who, who get failed by the VA. Um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, got put on medication, um, kind of been going to intensive therapy for about two and a half years now. Um, and they've actually uh, diagnosed me with a bunch of things, um, which, you know, to some degree, I think is their way of trying to say that I don't have PTSD but I do have PTSD, <laughs> um, it, you know, so they've said everything from I got borderline personality disorder to I'm bipolar. Somebody the other day, and it wasn't a clinician, but said, I'm, you know, you, you're autistic. I'm like, okay, like y'all are playing with me. But, um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, we deal with so much. We live in such a complicated um, time with so many complicated systems and you know, some people are neurodivergent, like everybody's mind, um, you know, operates differently. Um, and I just think that I'm someone who's a deep empath and I take on energy. Um, and I'm someone who's really passionate and enthusiastic about the work that I do. Um, and so sometimes, you know, that, 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 uh, that affects me and, you know, some might call it bipolar and, you know, other people might have different names for it. And I'm just learning how to live um, with, you know, how my mind works, regardless of, of how one might qualify it. But yes, it um, it all happened post-service. Got you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, and my mom, she's given me permission to like talk about these things. It's, uh, she served 20, she served more than 20 years. And she served in the first Iraq war. And she dealt with issues of sexual assault in the military and saw her career really you know like um 
really take a hit be because she dared to speak up again, you know, about what happened to her, you know, while she was in service, right? And so she's dealing with, um, she's she's working and she's in recovery right now and she's inpatient, you know, dealing with alcoholism that was exacerbated during her service, right? But I always am somebody that's encouraged by folks who talk about mental health because I, I actually uh, went through uh, therapy myself for depression, I would say five years ago. And I went through two years of intensive therapy twice a, twice a week. And I was on medication for a year. And it's done wonders for me. And it all depends on the person, right? So I just did through two years of, of, of intensive therapy. And then I took the medication. And so I don't go through it anymore. I may go, I may check in with my therapist every few months, but that's right about it. But I needed that intensive first two years because mine was connected to childhood trauma and violence, you know, growing up, you know, and so, um, and all these things happened while my mother was away. And so now it's interesting that I talk about my therapy and my mother talks about her recovery, right? And so now it's kind of come full circle, you know? And so I just spoke with her today. And so it's, that's just an interesting thing. I, I just want to open up by asking y'all, it would help us if we just knew what each of you all did and what were your thoughts about being deployed to Afghanistan then, and how do you reflect on it now? Brittany? I am here in my capacity as organizing director for About Face, Veterans Against the War. We're an organization of all post 9-11 military veterans who use our experience to share the truth of our experiences um, to kind of counteract some of the mistruths that are popularized you know, in the way that the wars have been sold and perpetuated for the American public and beyond, as well as kind of using the social capital that we are given as veterans for better or for worse to speak up about the nationalism that we need to address in order to also address uh, racial, gender, and economic justice issues. Um, because, you know, we've seen between, you know, Kaepernick and several, several other examples, the way that as people push for justice when it comes to um, addressing white supremacy or patriarchy or, you know, any of these dynamics, uh, things that have nothing to do with veterans and the troops are suddenly turned into issues of patriotism and issues of loyalty to the country. Um, and veterans, I think, can have an important role in speaking up and saying, you know, we we don't all think that and, and kind of don't um, don't attack people who are fighting for the very freedoms that we claim that this country is supposed to be about in our name, um, and instead to actually show up in solidarity for those efforts. So I'm also a proud member. A little bit about me, I grew up in a conservative military family. Um, I, you know, I really wanted to, I knew that things were not fair being biracial. I could see that, you know, I like was really taught to love this country and love the values that we say we're about growing up. Um, and yet I could see that the America that my white family was living in was not the America that my black Puerto Rican family was living in. And, um, you know, so I think that that planted seeds for me early on. And from an economic perspective, I also could see that there was this narrative that if anyone works hard enough, they can make it. Um, and yet I watched my parents work so hard, right? Like a lot of us work multiple jobs and still struggle to keep our housing, struggle, you know, friends from church bring us groceries. So. I joined the military, uh, for, you know, and on Army scholarship commissioned um, when I graduated from college and already had deployment orders to Afghanistan in 2012. 
And even by then, people were already, when I was telling friends and family, hey, I'm deploying to the war in Afghanistan, people said, I thought we ended that war already. I thought we already left. Um, and that was in 2011, 2012. And, you know, finally, hopefully, seeing the beginning of a real end. Um, so it's, it's a momentous thing for me to have the opportunity to be here with all of you in community. I deployed in, in February 2012. Um, with an engineer battalion. I was a logistics officer that had just gone through logistics uh, officer basic and um, was a maintenance platoon leader responsible for 40 lives of people who, by the way, for anyone who doesn't know how the military works, were all older and more experienced than me. So just that structure of being a 23-year-old put in charge of, of 40 people's lives who have kids my age sometimes. Um, is just wild and something I always want to highlight. So, but I was really bright-eyed. I was really, I took that responsibility really seriously. And I really believed that we were going to help the Afghan people um, and to work on a transition that would leave Afghan people in a better place, um, in a more secure place. And so when we got there, I, um, in a, within a couple months, I, there was a need, a kind of new role was created based on need because we were doing these transition operations and there was this acknowledgement that Afghan people don't really think of themselves in the nation, nation state framework that we think of ourselves in here in the United States, right? So there was this realization that we're trying to build this kind of nation state up and Afghans don't really think of it that way. And that was a barrier in the kind of DOD's assessment to our ability to leave effectively. And so, um, they created a role called strategic communications officer and mandated that every battalion had to have one. And so for the next year I was there, I was extended. Most of the battalion that I deployed with returned after they did a lot of route clearance and construction operations, building a facility in the northern part of Afghanistan that was meant to help be a landing and ex uh, exit facility basically to ship out what had even then already been a decade's worth of equipment accumulating in the country. So they did a lot of that. And then a crew of us was extended and I ended up there for a year and I ended up traveling all around the country, hopping from mission to mission, engaging with Afghan people and doing outreach and messaging campaigns that were meant to build up the credibility of the Afghan army and the Afghan engineers specifically, who were taking over route clearance operations, which means finding and safely disposing of improvised explosive devices that, that could harm civilians and others. Um, so in that experience, I just, I spent so much time with Afghan families from all over the country. And it became impossible for me to see, for me to not see that we were doing so much more harm than we were than we were doing good. Um, and I came home and, and you know, a couple other things I could see is I found myself fighting with commanders where we, you know, we were supposed to be on the same side. And yet it was so apparent that there were these officers that wanted more combat operations so that they could put that on their OER, their evaluation, right? And say, oh, look what a like legitimate combat officer I am. And that in a lot of ways wanted to use this as an opportunity to role play Call of Duty as if it was some kind of game. Um, 
And I, as a young, bright-eyed, like, I believe in the mission I was handed on this piece of paper, would find myself fighting with people saying, why are you raiding? You know, they would say, we're going to do a night raid on this village. And I would say, why? <laughs> and they, that's not our mission. And they would say, well, because they're not cooperating with us. They're not giving us intel. They're not. I was like, well, yeah, you're rolling through their village with armed to the teeth in these enormous, and they and there is a real threat that if they talk to us, they will die or their farm will be burned down. Um, so how does raiding their village address that problem? Um, and I think that that along with seeing contractors there, like our mechanics starting out as a maintenance platoon leader, our mechanics weren't even allowed to work on the aircraft because there was a contract with the corporation that dictated that only their mechanics could work on the vehicles, right? And Right. So how how do you reflect on all of that now, though, that you have, um, you know, you got all that experience and you saw that. So now when you reflect on it and you're running for Congress um, and you're not bright eyed anymore, you, you've seen the light. How do you see it? Yeah. So when I came home, I think putting those three kind of major things together that I was talking about, I came home at first just really hurt and really confused, um, feeling clear that I had participated in in harm instead of helping the way that I thought that I would. And it took me, and yet I still had a, I, had, I was in the reserves for a long time after that still too. And so it, I was slow, frankly, in, in making sense of it. But I think that um, actually when Colin Kaepernick took a knee and I saw, I wrote this passionate post with bullet points saying, you know, this man is doing everything that we say that that veterans are fighting for, that military is fighting for, why wouldn't, why would these things be at odds, right? And I thought, well, if people just hear that, then that'll be enough. They'll get it then, right? It's a little optimistic. And I was shocked by how many people replied, you know, I hadn't thought about a lot of these points. Thank you for writing this, but I still can't support him because the veterans, just that, right? And it, it became so clear to me how intense that condition, knee-jerk, kind of just like, thank you for your service, plastic patriotism has, has become, and that, and that I had a responsibility as someone who had experienced it firsthand and who was given credibility to, to tell the truth and to speak up on it. Um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. I spoke out while I was still in uniform. I was investigated for it, even though all I did was share literally publicly available facts that I found on Google from government sources. I was investigated as a possible insider threat and all kinds of other nonsense. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it was a question of integrity. And I don't believe, I think that if, especially if you're an officer responsible for, for people's lives, we have a responsibility not to perpetuate this idea that, you know, these lies that have been told about Isaiah. So the funny thing about my time in Afghanistan is that Richard and I were in Afghanistan at the same exact time. We were just in different parts of Afghanistan and didn't know it. And we were both stationed in Germany at the same time, just different parts of Germany. But uh, what I did in Afghanistan is I was an infantryman. I was a uh, 11 Bravo. I was a, a grunt, a door kicker. If you've ever seen a movie about war, Saving Private Ryan, the guys who stormed the beach, if you've seen you know, Black Hawk Down, the guys coming off the helicopter, that's what I did. I did that because that's the only job that I knew. My father, who you know came to this country in the 60s, he's Jamaican, he served in Vietnam as an infantryman. My uncle served in Panama and Grenada as an infantryman. So all I had known was just go to the infantry. So that's what I did as the poor black kid signing up for the army is I picked the first job I knew, the infantry, because you know a lot of times in service, black people are relegated to service roles, cooks, mechanics, 
supply, things like that. But I picked the infantry. So I was always one of maybe one or two black people in my entire company. There was not many black guys in the infantry. So I was the guy getting in firefights every day. I was the guy getting hit by improvised explosive devices on the road. I was the guy doing raids on villages. I was the guy, you know, swooping in with a Black Hawk helicopter at two in the morning, getting off, kicking in your door, putting a bag over somebody's head, throwing them on a helicopter. And I didn't know what happened to him after that, but that was my whole experience. You know, you don't understand what it is until you extricate yourself from that position. I served in Afghanistan when I was 24 and 25. I'm now 34. So it's been 10 years on since I've gotten out of uh, the, the, the military. Looking back on it, I can see, I, I'm speaking for myself personally, not all veterans. I can see how corrupt that the things I was doing were. The people who, that I, my, my platoon, my company was tasked to go after had never done anything to me. You know, they weren't responsible for the attacks of 9-11. They were just villagers and farmers who were defending themselves against an occupation of an American force, which I would expect any red-blooded American to do here if Russia or China invaded. You know what I mean? So one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. You know what I mean? So now I can look back on it. I mean, think about it. They called Mandela a terrorist when he was fighting for freedom for black people. And so it's always been like that. So now that I'm, like I said, now that I've extricated myself from that as an older man who's married and settled down and all that stuff, I would, I would never, ever put myself in that position again. But coming, you know, from an impoverished neighborhood, you know, immigrant working parents who don't have much money from a family of 11 brothers and sisters, and all you can see is death and destruction around you as a child growing up. I remember finding crack under the park fence where we played basketball in, a, in the old Tylenol tubes and seeing my first person shot and killed in front of me when I was eight years old. So coming from that, and then the military offers you not just to step up, they offer you a literal way out of your, you know, social economic status. You know, I was, I was eager to sign up, but looking back on it, I see how detrimental it was to my mental health at the time and how it's hurt so many people over the years. Richard. Yeah, I mean, Isaiah said a lot. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of parallels, um, I think, between our journeys. I um, am third generation army on my father's side. Um, he's a white middle American Trump supporting, um, you know, Vietnam and Gulf War vet. Um, but we were estranged most of my life. Um, and so I didn't grow up with him. I grew up with a single Haitian mother who also served in the military for three years when she first emigrated here. Um, I, I don't think anyone, you know, would have predicted um, up until the age of 20 that I'd ever join the armed forces. I'd um, kind of, I'd lost my scholarship at Morehouse College, like many first generation students sometimes do, um, for lack of just knowing how to traverse a college experience. Um, kind of in interned for um, the Obama campaign, kind of canvassing Central Florida. Um, and just decided that I wanted something different after Obama had won. I knew that I could get, um, I felt like I had lacked uh, discipline and man, and I didn't necessarily know how to be a man because I didn't grow up with a father. And so for whatever reason, I was like, maybe I can get that from the military because Morehouse is no longer an option. Um, but I could also, you know, find a way to pay for school um, and kind of get up at my mama's house and, you know, just learn how to be a man. So, um, you know, to Isaiah's point about service-oriented roles, when I first joined, I think I had like $10,000 in student loans under my name. And they said I couldn't get a security clearance. I wanted to do psych ops. And so um, 
I was forced to choose from a host of service-oriented roles and chose a combat medic position because I didn't want to do anything where I really felt like I could hurt people. I just want to make sure that I could help people. Um, so anyways, I ended up joining. I became an infantry combat medic station in Germany. Um, you know, again, another lie that my recruiter told me, she said I'd be able to go to college while I was in. So I was really intent on like finishing my degree in the four years that I, that I was in and then going straight to law school. And I didn't, I wasn't able to take not one college class in seven years, really, um, outside of, you know, when I was in, um, uh, the national guard. So I, um, yeah, I, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. Um, Isaiah and I are relatively the same age. So it was about a decade ago, which time flies. Um, how I see my service now, I think one, I was fortunate enough, um, especially as a combat medic during that time when, you know, certain areas of Afghanistan were really dangerous to be deployed to, um, to be protected in many ways from seeing so much um, carnage. Um, but one thing that I did witness was the psychological deterioration of so many men. Uh, you kind of get sent to a country, you're spending a year away from family and friends, kind of trying to contextualize what your life means, what, you know, all the experiences that you might have. And some, you know, soldiers actually went out and kind of experienced a lot of, a lot of things that were really difficult, right? Um, you know, figuring out all the things that Isaiah was speaking to as well, um, that they were kind of deployed to a country and trying to make sense of why they were even there. Um, and then, you know, we were on a former Russian base. And so you see like all these, basically these leftover vestiges of a failed war that happened 20 years before you got there. Um, and so that's just another kind of layer to it. But then, you know, I was also stationed next to a German military base. And then you realize all the ways in which the richest country in the world uh, treats their, the, those that sign up to serve so poorly. Um, you know, and how we're actually not as equipped as um, other militaries, even though we, we, we spend so much money um, on ours. So um, how I've, I've viewed my, my service since, um, I, I try not to give it too much thought, to be honest, you kind of just move on with your life in many ways. Um, you know, I started the Black Veterans Project to start to foster community for post 9-11 veterans, um, but also to really push around racial justice in the military um, and around uh, restitution for you know, kind of generations of Black vets who've experienced harm um, through that apparatus. So that's what I've dedicated my life to now. I'm, I'm very, you know, um, I guess I want to say the word happy, but um, cognizant that, you know, the end of this war doesn't mean the end of our presence in the Middle East. Um, when I first started, I'll just say this too, to, uh, as an endpoint, the military had just started something called AFRICOM. They now have over, I think, 15 or 20 bases throughout uh, the continent of Africa. And so, you know, when I talk about this military industrial complex, I know that it's, it's it far exceeds what most Americans even think to be true. Um, and we don't necessarily have to have a presence in Afghanistan to be conducting perpetual warfare and using our military as a colonial device. So, um, you know, much more conversation to be had. Yeah. So, 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 I'm, next thing I want to move on to, since we all, since we have an understanding of what you all did, is after Biden made this announcement of, of this withdrawal of the more than, you know, of the uh, roughly 2,500 troops, uh, a lot of the Republicans, they uh, responded um, by saying that it's a mistake. One person called the move dumb as dirt. And so, I just want to talk to you, Isaiah, about what do you think this means, particularly since the president wants to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11 with this withdrawal? Well, um, there's an old Afghan proverb 
they they say it to us in Pashto all the time, which is the main language they speak over there. And, and it says that you may have the watches, but we have the time. That's what the Afghans used to tell us when we would, when they would ask us, "How long are you gonna be here?" We would tell them we don't know, and they would tell us, "You know, you may have the watches, but we have the time." You know, Afghanistan is called the Empire Killer for a reason. You know, Alexander the Great marched elephants, more elephants, into Afghanistan and got defeated. As Richard said before, I was near a Russian military base as well. They sent a million troops to Afghanistan and spent 10 years and untold amounts in blood and were defeated. And America, with her grandiose schemes, thought she could do the same thing. And now we see that they truly do have the time. You know, so how I feel about it is it should have been done years ago because what is the end goal here? What is the end goal for us in the war in Afghanistan? Was it to go and get who they said perpetrated 9-11, Osama bin Laden? If that was the case, then our end goal, we got Osama bin Laden while I was in Afghanistan. I remember in 2011, we had what's called a blackout. They shut down all communications because I was 60 miles from the Pakistani border when they caught Osama bin Laden. If that was the case, then we should have been gone 10 years ago. What is the end goal? Is it to bring a government to Afghanistan? If that's the case, they have a government in Afghanistan. You may not like the way it functions, but they have one. So is that the end goal? Is the end goal to eradicate the, the Taliban? You can't do that because guess what? Every Taliban person you kill, you just create three more because if you kill my father, I promise you I'm going to avenge him. So what is the end goal? I'm glad we're finally getting out. I mean, I don't care about the pomp and circumstance of doing it on a certain day. For me, it should have been done 10, 15, 20 years ago. But we never had a clear delineation of where we needed to be in Afghanistan, Iraq, or any of the conflicts that America gets in. And I'm so glad Richard brought up Africa because a lot of people don't even, Africa is not even on people's radar in terms of the military footprint and the military presence there. As a matter of fact, when I re-enlisted, they offered me that as a duty station, Germany or Africa. I always offered Germany or Djibouti, Africa. I was like, I don't know anything about going back to Africa. It's hot, so I'll go to Germany. And now we're, we're building up our military presence in Africa such that there's going to be another spillover in conflict because if you look at the, the geopolitical ramifications, China is moving into Africa for all of their you know, industrial needs. And America sees that. That's the reason why we had bases all over the Middle East. Oil prices are coming down. Oil is not a thing anymore, so America's moving on to the next. So I say all that to say this, that we need to be mindful of where we, where we spend our resources. We have 800 military bases in 70 countries across the world. If that's not an empire, then I don't know what it is. And every empire throughout history has fallen. The Greeks, the Romans, the Assyrians, the, the Turks, all of them have fallen. And America is no different. We're, we're flesh and blood like everybody else. So we need to be mindful of where we spend our resources and a trillion dollars on war is not a good use of them. Richard. What was the question? I was just so, so intent about listening to Isaiah. I apologize. <laughs> no, no. I was asking you, what do you think about Biden's move to finally um, withdraw the remaining troops out of Afghanistan? It's welcomed, I guess. I mean, you know, vets have been fighting for an end to this particular conflict for quite some time. So I think that's an achievement on their end more than anything else. I think they re recently delivered a, a letter, a group of, of vet organizations uh, calling for an end to this war as well. So I, I mean, it's really an achievement on the, the organizational efforts of, of veterans um, and the pressure that they've placed on Biden to demand that he end this war, knowing that he'd be held accountable if he did not. 
Um, so that's that's one. So it's it's really it, it, that victory belongs to the vets uh, more than it belongs to to Biden himself. Um, you know, and 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 then second, I mean, like I said before, like you know, the ways in which we've built out an apparatus that is so much more complicated than just this particular conflict. It seems to me that it it is like a performative gesture in many ways. It's meant to kind of you know highlight that he's done something significant. When I got to an Afghanistan, I remember um, I think the Iraq War war was ending at that time. We since know that it's it's you know technically not ended, um, and and we had transitioned to winning hearts and minds in Afghanistan. We are no longer fighting a combat war. Um, I don't think the Afghan people saw it that way. Um, and you know, a decade later, here we are. So um, it's 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 welcome. Um, but like I said, I think the victory belongs to all the vets that have spent you know the better part of twenty years trying to fight to end this conflict. Right. So, Brittany, my question for you is: What do we owe the Afghan people? For example, I'm just thinking about all the translators, all the uh, all the Afghan support staff. I'm thinking about the the danger that many of these people uh, were in when they risked their lives to support U.S. military. And so if you have this experience, just tell me about any experiences that you have working with with local Afghans. And since we're withdrawing, I just hate to think about the situation in which we just say, OK, guys, we're, we're going to leave and bye. Good luck. Um, what do we owe as far as the the suffering that they've caused and, and, and the sacrifice that they made? Yeah, well, the short answer is reparations. I think that we, whether we're talking about the attempted genocide against indigenous nations here at the founding of this nation, or we're talking about the enslavement of African people, or we're talking about this war that has done catastrophic harm to a people who did not attack us, we need to, if we're really going to rebuild and move forward and heal, um, and not just heal individuals, but heal communities so that there aren't these cycles of violence that replicate themselves, we have to be willing to own and confront the difficult truths of harm that we do. And we have to be willing to make it right, right? It's not enough to just say like, this was a mistake or this was wrong or it didn't work. We have to make it right. And so I think that the danger here is, is being really clear that making it right does not mean staying indefinitely, right? That has been the argument for a long time is we can't leave, we can't leave, we can't leave because we don't wanna leave Afghan people in a worse place. And yet Afghanistan, one of the most catastrophic failures of assessment at best, if we put it, I think generously, is treat is attempting to treat the graveyard of empires as if it is this unified nation state and misunderstanding what it means to operate outside of a, a context of nationalism right and so i think one of the things that we have not been humble enough to confront is that we as a nation don't actually have experience navigating and negotiating peace in a context like this and so I think our responsibility is to be humble enough to acknowledge that, to use our resources that we owe in reparations in supporting the Afghans to lead their own rebuilding and using our relationships and resources to bring in 
others in the global south, whether that's the continent of Africa or South America, who have had to navigate both the impacts of US operations that destabilize their government and what it means to navigate nation states and tribal and ethnic affiliations at the same time in negotiating peace to bring, you know, to welcome those folks to help lead a process that we are not actually equipped to lead and support. Um, I think that that's our role. And I also think that it's really important that that be a demand. I've been so proud of, of you know, like Richard said, many of the veterans organizations, including mine, that have been fighting this fight um, since Obama kind of was pushed to position himself as the anti-war candidate. Um, back when we were still called Iraq veterans against the war. But um, I think even then, one of our, uh, you know, a self-critique I would have is that we fail to articulate the details of what ending forever war, ending endless war really meant. And one of those things has to be reparations, not just from a moral perspective, but from a strategic one, because we, the Afghan war, one of the things we don't talk about, right, if anyone's seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War, one of the ways that we ended up there in the first place is that we were weaponizing and meddling in conflict, refused to then follow that up with an investment in building up civil infrastructure, which then created the climate for the need for, you know, the art, or at least the articulated need for a military intervention. And we should learn from that. We should make sure to approach this as, you know, building up community. If we don't, if we don't make sure that we participate and do our duty in that, it is it amounts to a plan to return, and it will only be a few years before we hear Hawk saying, "Oh, this is happening, and this is why it's a national security issue for us to go back." And I would like us to proactively prevent that. I'd like to add something to that. What, so you know, and I, I think there's a precedent for for what she's um, talking about. So when we think about the end of World War II and the ways in which we you know, united, um, you know, uh, all of Europe to rebuild Germany, to rebuild um, Japan. Marshall Project. Yeah, the Marshall Project, um, you know, and it really was about empowering those countries and as, you know, individual entities to kind of rebuild themselves. So this is an, an unprecedented request, right? I think the language perhaps around reparations is so, um, it's it's been so politicized that you know we can name it something else, right? If we needed to, but the but the end goal is the same, right? And I think also you know to her part about you know all of the harms that we've done in destabilizing governments, but I think about 50 years since you know the the height of Vietnam, you know I know an organization called Peace Trees in Vietnam who are literally there there it's a it's a it's a it's a American run nonprofit. It's the only one in Vietnam that is specifically dedicated to removing um, uh, explosive devices that, which I think there's like 30 or 40 or 50,000, some ridiculous number uh, of explosive devices all over that country that continue to maim and harm um, their civilians. And so how we left that country, I think is a shameful mark on our legacy. And we certainly didn't uh, find it, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, we didn't make it a priority to do something like the Marshall Project post-Vietnam, and now we've created this trend of going into countries, decimating them, calling it a win, you know, even even kind of trying to recontextualize a loss, perhaps, um, and then moving on. And, and I, I don't think that our military, uh, I don't think that the Amer American people can afford to allow our military to operate in that way continuously. So, um, yeah, I think she made sp uh, very, very terrific points there. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, Isaiah, about this conversation, the, 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 
the real conversation about how much military do we need, but with with a particular focus on just the ways in which our military functions. When you think about the Marshall Plan, you think about Japan, you know, I, and I didn't know, is it, was it in Japan as well? I didn't, I wasn't aware. Um, I just know it focused yes, on. Yes, they, they, they did, they rebuilt Japan and. Did Japan. Japan. Okay, yeah, okay, good, all right, thank you. So, so basically, you know, um, I, the way that I think about the, the military industrial complex, it's an extension of white supremacy. And when I listen to officials talk about military and war, because part of my, my writing includes writing about military budgets and, and, and nuclear weapons. And the main problem that I see, Isaiah, is that many people who are, in, are elected officials cannot think about security without the use of force. They don't, it, it just, it, it, and it's a very similar conversation that we're having about policing in this country. That in order to deal with someone who you, you know, just the naming of adversary, axis of evil, all of these things, I'm currently writing about Iran. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people who are just so hawkish about not returning to this deal. And they're not saying it explicitly, but implicitly they are leaving open this conversation about war. And I know you all are astute politically, but I think we all remember Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, right? And, you know, you know, you all been to Iraq. I'll never forget <laughs> Ahmadinejad. Now, here's the thing. He's batshit crazy. But, um, there, but, but one thing he did say made sense, which was he said that if America invades Iran, we will make Iraq look like paradise. Oh, he was right about that. He... Yeah, okay, so yeah, so so <laughs> yeah, he, yes, and he was right about that. But 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 the thing is that why do you think Isaiah that people are so devoted to this use of military to resolve conflict and and they only see security through that lens? Because most people have never served in the military, so they never see how the sausage is made. They're sending somebody else's son or daughter over to fight. Have you? have ever seen a dead body get blown to pieces in front of you, then you will understand that peace should always be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth option. That war should be the last option. That's the reason, and we associate peace with militarism is because that's how our nation was founded. We, we took this country from the indigenous people who lived here. Once we murdered them and pushed them off of their land and we had so-called peace, but peace for one can be a hellacious condition for another. That's how America was founded. And like uh, uh, Ahmadinejad, who people don't know is the president or, or the president Correct. of, Prime thank you. Yes. of yeah, Iran. Thank you. Yeah. But they have a president and they have a supreme spiritual leader. So they have two. He was the president before. Iran has a modern military, million people in there. They have hundreds of millions of dollars. So they, they, they would not be like Iraq, which we disbanded their military. It was called debasification when we first went to Iraq in 2003. Um, when we, with respect to the military budget, our Department of Education, for folks who don't know who can see me, my wife is a first grade teacher. So we're sitting in my living room right now, and this is her first grade classroom behind me because we, she's been teaching remotely. Our education budget, federal, is around $68 billion. Our Department of Defense budget is over $750 billion. We're spending 13 times more on bombs and bullets than we are on bullets and backpacks. And we do that 
because books and backpacks you probably meant yes gotcha the, the 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 old maxim is true they will never bite the hand that feeds them if you look at the political donations from these 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 arm companies arms companies and these weapons manufacturers they go to democrats and republicans equally if folks think the healthcare lobby is big you know we're talking about pfizer making you know 80 90 billion dollars in profit that's one contract to general dynamics that's not even you see what i'm saying so if you think the healthcare lobby is big if you think the insurance lobby is big if you think the police union is big the unforeseen hand that moves the market in america is the military industrial complex 55 percent of all of discretionary spending in this country is on the military budget let me say that again 55 percent of what we spend in this country is on the military budget. Do you realize that to end child hunger in this nation will cost around $25 billion? That's like eight F-35 fighter jets. That's like eight. So Martin Luther King Jr. warned us about the rise of the military industrial complex. He was a black leftist minister. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the Supreme Allied commander in World War II, was a Republican president. He warned us about the rise of the military industrial complex. And it seems like those who are in power do not, they did not heed the warning, obviously, because military spending is increasing and increasing. And after 9-11, I understand people were scared. So they traded their, their liberties for safety, well, relative safety, or what they thought was safety, because we had never seen anything like that. So we just wanted to feel safe in our own homes and persons and papers and effects. But in a, in a sense, what we had done is we had created a Leviathan that is now growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because every single year, we're talking about cutting food stamps. That's 0.2% of our federal budget. We're talking about how can we get more funding for school? If we, our military budget needs to be cut in half to start with. Even if we cut our military budget in half to 350 billion, we would still outspend every nation on this earth with our military budget. Who are we fighting against? We have, China's not attacking us. Their economy is predicated on us buying stuff from them. Russia is not attacking us. Their economy is predicated on our allies buying their weapons and their oil. So who is attacking us that we need to spend this much money on the military industrial? It's a self-sustaining cycle. And again, going back to AFRICOM, if you think it's going to end with Afghanistan, you think they're spending $750 billion to let these weapons sit in the room collecting dust, they're going to find a place to use them. If all you have is a hammer, every damn thing in the world looks like a nail. Here's the thing. I, I spend a lot of time talking to elected officials and I particularly focus on nuclear weapons nonproliferation, right? And so I get into the weeds of the intercontinental ballistic missile and, and all those things. And here's the thing that I find interesting about people who are very hawkish about uh, cutting nuclear weapons, um, you know, uh, spending, for example. Their, their, their response is, where are we gonna get the jobs to replace them? And my response is, if you have the ability to enrich uranium, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure you can do something else, right? And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you can use your skills as a nuclear engineer for, some, for a peaceful means. And I also talk to people about how you can never win a nuclear war right? It's just virtually impossible. And another troubling fact is many of these folks who are running don't have sound military knowledge, right? So 
they, for example, I'm not, a, I haven't served like you all, but what I do have is that I do have knowledge about budgets and I read budgets. I understand, um, I, I understand areas of, you know, certain weapon systems, for example. So, so I can really get in, I can ask intelligent questions to the experts and come up with conclusions. And I find out a lot of people who are hawkish about these areas don't even know that. And so uh, for you, Brittany, how are you navigating this conversation around the military industrial complex as you're running your campaign? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned in my evidence in my own story, even when you're just sharing facts that are good for troops too, right? Like we don't want to be sending troops to a mission that is just going to leave them with physical damage or moral injury and hurts the people we're supposedly fighting for and takes resources, as Isaiah pointed out, so got me so hyped, in the way it, you know, pointed out so effectively. Uh, it's bad for everyone. And yet there's such a conditioned knee jerk reaction that it can be difficult to talk to an average community member about this, right? It feels overwhelming sometimes because you're like, how do I unpack this for people so that they understand the direct connection? And for me, you know, I think building on what Isaiah was getting at is pointing to the fact that, I mean, to the point of we, we should cut the military budget in half. What a lot of people don't realize is we could do that and not take a single dime from troops because almost half the military budget goes to corporations whose executives are making $4 million annually a year or more in their compensation packages. While you have troops over here on food stamps struggling to feed their families, and you have Afghans just trying to figure out how to literally live. And so, you know, and so I think that it's important for us to uplift these places where people have a lot of condition and I would argue intentional misunderstanding about what is really happening with our military? I think we need to be calling the question of what is the purpose of our military? You know, what is the purpose of our National Guard? Is it to show up every time there's a people's movement for justice to protect the police? Is it to respond to natural disasters? Because in that case, maybe we should just have an actual branch of the government that is fully funded to actually respond to crises. Without guns. Um, you know, so I think that it starts with, with calling the question on the cycle of legalized corruption, which is what, when we're talking about the military industrial complex, that's what we're talking about, right? Half that budget going to corporations whose only real customers are the taxpayer, are the government, right? You're talking about 75 to 90% of their revenue most of the time is our tax dollars, and they turn around and funnel that back into the pockets of politicians to keep the dollars flowing. And I think when people hear that, they understand that this isn't a matter. It's not even a question of being pro or anti-military. It's a question of what's good for our communities, of what is the kind of society that we want to build. Do we want to invest in actual safety? Um, and I think that that's why these narratives, it's why I'm so excited that other vets who are anti-war here are running, right? I mean, two of us here alone, I think it's so critical because we're uniquely positioned to speak that truth in a way that sometimes other people are not listened to. Um, that if we really want safety, we have to confront the, that we have been conditioned since the birth of this nation to think that the only answer is force, is brute force and bullying, whether that's economic sanctions that we use to bully people or military and bombs. And so 
Um, I think that it's 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 just shifting our view to what would it take for us to co to, to ground in cooperation that creates safety, investment that creates safety, and that's what I'm interested in. Oh, job question though. Do you want me to speak to that, or you want to jump in? You can finish your point about the job question, then I'll close it out um, with the final segment with Richard. But go ahead, you can finish that point. Okay. Well, I wanted to introduce, I think we need to popularize the language of just transition. It's a framework that was developed by indigenous nations who were often, there would be one coal company and that's where everybody on the reservation almost worked. It was the best job, right? And so then there was this move, when, when movement was like, well, this coal company is destroying our land and making our people sick also, um, so we should not support them. There was this practical economic reality of, yeah, and those are the only jobs and our people are already living in poverty. And so there was this framework that was developed that was about building, right? That taking, that dismantling the military industrial complex and militarism isn't about an absence, it's about a presence of investing in, other, in, in transferring to those other types of things like other folks have talked about. And we can do that. We can invest. There's so much infrastructure work that needs to be done. There's so much remediation and environmental protection work that needs to be done. There are jobs to go around and there is work to be done. And if we decide that that's what we want to prioritize and move away from a war economy, we can and we must. So, Richard, when, when um, there's a lot of conversation about reimagining policing, right? I, I, I found it ironic <laughs> that former President Obama used that language in response to Dante Wright's um, um, killing. I call it murder, you know, murder. That's my my, my personal language for it. Because um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, to soften it with that taser bullshit. I just, I, I just refuse. But, but I am really interested in this conversation around reimagining the military, right? And what that means, because one of the points that you brought up, Richard, was in our in our last conversation. We were talking about the the some of the complaints that that um, that were made against Afghan and, and Iraqi forces about not being able to defend and protect themselves and all these other things in the sphere of if we leave them. They don't know what they're doing. And you mentioned that many of these countries are not built as occupying military forces. Like they're not built for occupation, you know, as a ways like America is. But I think that we see the consequences of occupying forces, i.e. the subject of this episode, Afghanistan. Um, like you said, Isaiah, hey, they, like, the, you know, this, this, this saying, you have the watches and we have the time. It doesn't work. So I think that this, the, this, um, this withdrawal should really help us think about what should the military do. And I think that people are so afraid of what it looks like when we start questioning a reduction in military, because you know that Barbara Lee, Representative Barbara Lee, uh, she's been leading a campaign for years to cut the budget by 10%. And she has been met with fierce opposition. And, and it's not just a Republican thing. Most Democrats aren't for it, Okay. And so Isaiah and Brittany are going to be a part, you know, they, you know, you get into office, you'll be a part of a caucus of people who will be about the reduction of the military. But I'm interested in what a, a military uh, reimagining would look like in your eyes, Richard. When, when I think about reimagining the military, understanding that, you know, 
it is it is a complex. Um, we have a modern military that is you know, reshaped itself in many, many ways. Um, we don't even fight conventional wars the way that we used to. Um, and I think one of the things that, that, that is, that it's allowed the military to run rampant. And to your point, I think just before I start, you talk about um, staunch opposition, even from you know members of the left or, or, or members of uh, the Democratic Party. It's because they're they're relying on donations, right? So we need to we need to start to think about how we overturn the provisions that allow um, corporations to be viewed as people, right? Um, but anyway, so back to the point about what I think about reimagining the military now I, I kind of come from it through a, a racial lens but it certainly applies um you know more, more broadly than that um we need to do two things we need to pass a military civil rights act um so that we can actually afford we can actually codify into law that discrimination in the military um will not stand um, as it stands now there's actually no uh, federal legislation that exists that bars discrimination um, in the military. Um, and also the Civil Rights Act of 1965 doesn't apply, um, or 64 rather, doesn't apply to the military. So Title VII um, applications don't apply. I didn't know that. Yes. I did right. not know so, that. So, you know, applying a Title VII application would do two things. Um, one, it would force the military to have to abide by the same kind of E, um, equal opportunity provisions as the civilian sector, um, right? And, and this is largely applied to in garrison, right? Like when you deploy, perhaps there, you know, has to be some some differentiation in, in what protections you might have to kind of forfeit. Um, but just broadly, which most of our military serves in garrison for extended periods of time, they should be afforded um, kind of, you know, equal um, equal opportunity, and they should, you know, ha have a system in place um, that is fully functioning and accountable to a civilian um, to a civilian standard. Um, and two, uh, and this kind of coincided with the rise of the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower spoke of. But there's uh, something called Ferris Doctrine that has been in place since the beginning of the 1950s, and it bars service members from being able to levy suit against the military. So when you talk about um, the systemic human rights abuses that happen um, for individuals who, who end up serving, um, they really have no, no real recourse, right? Like they might be able to file a complaint if they face racial discrimination. We know that uh, women veterans and male veterans, you know, sexual assault remains a pervasive issue and they have to go through their own chain of command for redress. And if the chain of command fails them, I mean, even if they're successful and say they punish um, the person that aggrieved them in some way, there's still no financial compensation for that for that harm, right? Um, so when you think about just even levying a class action against the VA, uh, against, well, we're doing something against the VA too, but uh, a class action against the DOD, these are things that vets should be able to do because it is the only way that we can really keep um, not only the military industrial complex in check, but as an institutional force, um, you know, uh, this really important kind of critical institution when you think about the maintenance of our multiracial democracy, um, that, that re-envisioning must happen. Um, and so, and, and even by way of, you know, passing something like a military civil rights act, it makes sure that someone like Trump can't come in and say trans members cannot serve, right? And undermine, you know, the progress that's being made on that front. Um, and we talk about the pervasiveness of racial discrimination, the pervasiveness of sexual assault, the pervasiveness of religious discrimination that the military just quite frankly fails at. And they just have a PR machine that is funded by billions of dollars um, to kind of try to paint a picture that it's this inclusive environment. And when we see white nationalism running rampant as well, like 
there has to be a zero tolerance policy. The ways in which they had zero tolerance for the service of LGBT members at one point for the service of women, how they barred African-Americans for serving for a, lot, for, for, for a large part of our nation's history. They have to have that same zero tolerance for individuals that threaten the lives and, 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 and the psychological um, you know, conditions of, of, of other men and women who decide to, to, to volunteer to serve. So that's what I see when I think about re-envisioning the military. It's coupled with kind of not only just reducing the budget, but really thinking about how we extend workers' rights, how we, we kind of make sure that the military is keeping pace with our evolution uh, of civil rights and that it's it's actually bound to something that's uh, tangible um, in a way that uh, gives service members power. And you know this, this Ferris Doctrine hasn't always existed. It was put into place to protect the coffers of the military when the rise of uh, the military industrial complex really started and it, and it must be addressed. Isaiah, when you think about reimagining the military, what, what, what are your thoughts? I was engrossed in what Richard was saying and he made some great points and he, he, he basically stole my thunder. So I'm gonna try to, <laughs> figure, I'm gonna try to figure out. This is our thunder. This is Black Veteran Project thunder, so. That's true. So we talk about reimagining the, the military. As I said before, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's like when they build a new jail in a neighborhood, they have to fill that jail with somebody. So it's a black or a brown person most time because it's in their low income neighborhoods. If we're, if we're continuing to fund this military budget where it balloons and balloons and balloons and balloons, then we can't even talk about having a reimagining of the military until we bring this budget down because we're gonna, we're gonna have to find some way to use these, these vehicles. If, if you would know, they're literally, these companies get new contracts every year for brand new things they just made that we don't have a use for. And then what happens to that, that, that stuff? It comes with the 1033 program that allows you know, surplus military equipment to be sold to police forces. So it's not just the military, it funnels over into our everyday lives as we see in Ferguson and all over the country when cops have armored MRAPs outside of you know, protests when people, black people are just telling, hey, we don't wanna get shot anymore. So reimagine the military means a, a total reduction in our military budget. It also means we need to invest into our State Department so we leave with diplomacy first and not our, our military footprint first. We need to walk softly and also, we need to also reduce the size of the stick because if you know you have that stick in your back pocket, you're going to always want to, to use it. Another thing, I'm glad Brittany brought up about sanctions. There's a saying in political science that democracies don't go to war with each other. You may not like it, but China's not a democracy, but they're damn sure a capitalist country. And I told you before, they're not going to war with us because their economy is predicated on ours and neither is Russia. We need to, to remove these economic sanctions we have on countries and start leading with diplomacy diplomatically. You know what I mean? The best thing you can do to end the civil war is to provide jobs and education. That's the best thing you can do. If you can give these folks jobs, if we can work with their state department, with our state department and foster economic growth in their countries, then we can, we can take war off the table altogether. Now, there are always gonna be despotic leaders across the world. We elected one. <laughs> well, well, they elected one. We, none of, neither of us on this. On this um... <laughs> There's always going to be a need for a military. So I don't want people to think that I'm a pacifist, like just end the military altogether. That's, that's, that's nonsensical. It doesn't work like that in the world we live in. Nobody's saying that, but what we are saying when we talk about a reimagining of the military is our military does not need to be so big. 800 bases across 70 plus countries. That is an empire footing. That is an empire footprint. We've seen that before. We need to lead with diplomacy first. 
so we can take our military off of the table. People can know we have it and know we will use it if we need to, but it shouldn't be the first thing. Look at Trump. I'm going to rain down fire and fury on North Korea. How do you think that would have turned out? With thousands of troops stationed right across the border in South Korea and North Korea with military weapons. Instead of trying to lead with the- And not only that, though, Isaiah, though, the, the issue, but uh, not only that, Isaiah, the, the thing about North Korea, that that would not, that, that would be a bloody war and that's not an easy war. The thing that pisses me off about folks who talk, who, who use this very grandiose language is that the shit sounds cool and it looks like a video game until the war actually starts. And so, because the thing about nuclear, about North Korea, not, I'm happy that you brought that up. The number one thing that I think really gets in the way of Americans and thinking about their capacity to fight back, because their equipment is old, but they have, you know, as far, but, 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 but as far as, you know, their missile strike capacity, they have thousands of them. I mean, they can, you know, talking about raining fury, they can rain the fury the fuck out of South Korea. And that's what exactly it will trigger. And not only that, um, beyond the war element, you're creating a a, a, a a refugee crisis. And you know that China does not recognize refugees, right? And so, and they have a very fierce thing. And you see that with the Uyghur situation that's going on there right now, right? So there are all of these other side things that a war creates, right you know and you know indirectly and so yeah that's 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 a good thing i just wanted to mention that can i jump in real quick because i really think when we we talk about reimagining our military we have to confront the problem of white of white nationalism white supremacy in this country like it has to be like a serious serious reckoning because even you know i had a conversation with my father we recently reunited uh for a film project and, he, and he's an older white man, middle American, and he really believes that we're in a war of cultures. Then it, it ties back to this kind of thousand year kind of kind of view that like it's Christians versus Muslims and that like one is better than the other, which is deeply rooted in white supremacy. And if we're not contending with that, if we're not contending with the, the like the, the, the insidious nature that white people have to propagate themselves onto the world, then we're not really having the conversation and the military will continue to be co-opted um, in the ways that it has been. Right. So, Brittany, I want to end off with you. Uh, we had a number of things. Isaiah talked about the State Department. I'm a big State Department person. And in fact, uh, particularly, I think about language training. So when I was in grad school, I received a uh, language training with you know Russian through the U.S. State Department. And I joined Peace Corps, which uh, which is under the State Department. And one of the skills that that gives you is language. And during my time in Eastern Europe, the most important defense that I had was being able to understand what the hell other people were saying, right? And we understand that under Trump, he you know he he severely underfunded the State Department and gutted it in many ways. I have friends and colleagues who are there who talk about how good it is and how much repair, repair that needs to take place, but it's a fraction of the budget, right? And we know how effective the State Department is. These are very intelligent people who have devoted their lives to service. Um, and we understand that before, you know, the, the tanks roll in, being able to sit down with people is essential. And I do give Biden some credit for really pushing back against the hawks on the Iran talks as right now, um, the intermediaries between Tehran and D.C., uh, are 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 talking about what a return back to the Iran deal looks like. So that's promising, right? But again, your that's some context I wanted to add so you can close out about what you think about a reimagining of the military. What does that look like for you? 
that uh, Isaiah and Richard have covered kind of reimagining the military itself and the social context that we need to address in order for that to be successful. So what I think we actually need to be reimagining and restructuring is our society. And I think I'm really grateful that white nationalism and white supremacy was brought up. And in About Faith, we usually talk about uh, white supremacy and patriarchy as twin pillars that are mutually reinforcing. And just one really simple example, because I know sometimes these things get esoteric for people. What I mean when I say that is, is what has been touched on, but just to crystallize it is we literally, when we say foreign policy, what people really mean is military policy most of the time. Like our view is so narrow that we're so convinced that the military or some form of kind of coercion, right? Economic coercion through sanctions or whatever has to be the solution to everything that it has crowded out our ability to even imagine or think about what would other structures be that would make a mili make militaries globally, not just in the US, right? But globally less and less necessary. And I think that one example of that is that if I were to walk up to you or, you know, let's just say like an average man who works out, right? Like kind of cis man. And I was like, I'm stronger than you. The place that people's minds would go is physical strength right? They would interpret that statement as, as a challenge of, or a statement of a comparison of physical strength, right? I am physically stronger than you. And, and that goes down a whole weird path. But we don't even realize that that is a function of the patriarchal lens that we look through that only interprets strength in this very limited context of physical force. Right, and that's just one interpersonal example. In many societies, that is not the first thing people would say. If you said the word strength, it would not immediately invoke physical force. It would invoke lots of different, it would invo invoke family strength, right? It would invoke all cultural strength, artistic strength, all of these other things. And I know this because later, one of the things I didn't mention is later I went through psychological operations school and it was literally studying the psychology of the different associations people make with words like that that are culturally specific. And so I, I say that as what I hope is a hopeful example for us to reflect on the ways that we are like that we don't always know the water we're swimming in, right? And so that there's opportunity for us, I think, to, to acknowledge that there are these realist premises, if we think about international relations theory, right? I think something that gets lost and a nuance that is important is for me, like I say, I'm not a pacifist. I believe that some of the premises of realism are correct, that nation states will work in their own interests, right? Like all of these things. I think that the conclusions are through a very spe culturally specific lens, right? That the conclusion has to be that therefore we have to project as much hard power or soft power as we can around the world in order to maintain safety. I think an alternative is that we could be leaders in building genuinely collaborative and cooperative international structures that hold mechanisms for genuine accountability processes across tribes, ethnicities, nations, and regions, et cetera, that hold other functions. And we've seen attempts with that around the UN and others. But the problem is, is again, because of the way we tend to operate, we wield so much undue power that it ultimately ends up in many cases operating as a puppet of empire. 
And so I, I, I just want to leave people with that food for thought is just giving ourselves the permission and the space to, yes, reckon with the practical realities of our present, but to imagine what are the things that we don't even allow ourselves to venture into thinking about, such as these kinds of structures that are rooted in genuine transformation and cooperation for the good of everybody, as opposed to advance, advancing the interests of one government or really one kind of set of oligarchs. Definitely. So I, I share all those sentiments. But thank you all for coming to the show. Brittany, Isaiah, Richard, three Black veterans um, giving their perspective. I, I always center people of color veterans because we see so much of the you know like the the tight jaw white males uh with the buzz cuts talking about security and we know that their security their definitions of it often don't reflect ours what it means and it's a very interdisciplinary conversation and so we think about security with you know without the barrel of the gun and uh these are important convos and so Isaiah and Brittany, um, wishing y'all well on your campaigns and Richard brother, second time on the show, um, won't be the last one. There'll be a third one soon. So we did a show y'all and we'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Black Diplomats Podcast. Please support us by going to Apple iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. And also find us on Patreon and help support us financially so that we can continue producing high-quality programming. Thank you again and see you next week.